Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Today I'll tell you about a new family drama called Queen of the Morning Calm, starring Tina Jung and playing in theaters from September 25th. It's a story of redemption set against a backdrop of violence and sex work, written and directed by Gloria Kim, who joins me today. Queen of the Morning Calm follows 29-year-old immigrant sex worker Deborah and her self-aware 10-year-old daughter Mona as they embark on a journey of emancipation. Deborah attempts to escape cycles of abuse and poverty while learning to become a more nurturing mother and discovering her own self-worth. Deborah's path in life is not easy, but director Gloria Kim never wallows in the misfortune of her story. The hurdles in Deborah's life are realistically portrayed, emotional, and she is even sometimes the architect of her own misfortune. But there is an optimism to the story that no matter how bad things get, they can and will get better. It's a journey of deliverance for both Deborah and Mona, made more real by engaging performances from Jung and Lee. Queen of the Morning Calm is a self-assured feature debut for Gloria Kim, who worked for a decade or more to bring the story to the screen. Her story of Deborah's empowerment of self-discovery is honest and heartbreaking, steely, yet vulnerable and handled with great sensitivity. In this interview, Gloria Kim and I talk about the 11 years she spent working to get this story to the screen, how her background in journalism as a former McLean's reporter informed the writing of this story, how she guided her 11-year-old star Eponine Lee through the film's difficult material, and much more. Let's set things up with a clip from Queen of the Morning Calm in theaters starting September 25th. Yeah, we gotta celebrate. Oh, Derek. He brought me some amazing weed. We gotta try. I have my last exam before my certificate. Come on, it's sativa. It's not gonna mess you up. I don't know. Come on, please. Come on, come on, come party with me. Come play, come play, come play, come play. Okay, come on, okay. fine. Okay. All right, let's go. go Film go. projects take a while. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was really important to me because um, like the characters just came to me and they were so alive and they just insisted that their story be told. It's funny because when you write, you sometimes don't know really why you're writing. You just know that there's this voice, these voices and these characters and they're just like kind of like poking you and needing to say something. And it was weirdly a journey of my discovering that I was trying to heal something um, personal between myself and my own mother. <laughs> that I had, um, you know, in life, it's, it's so much more difficult to figure that stuff out, right? Um, but in art, you have this license to create these characters who kind of do stuff for you and act in ways that you want them to act so that you can feel, um, feel that that you know resolution and closure that you may never get in real life so was this cathartic for you then the writing of this yeah you know it really was cathartic it really was um something that i needed to do coming from where i came from as a survivor of violence i kind of really needed to tell a woman's story from her perspective about that experience because so often you see on screen um, violence against women used as a plot point and used as a turning point and used to further along a 
story to get you know the hero to do whatever actionable thing that he's going to do to save the damsel in distress all of those things it's very it's archetypal you know i totally understand it but i had just gotten to this point in my life where i was like i would really love to tell a hero's journey from a woman's perspective in which she experiences all these things that are very common to women and comes out at the end with her own actions that are um actions of a hero essentially and they may not be what you would expect uh to see on screen that a hero does you know she doesn't beat anybody up or punch anybody out you know or steal a bunch of things well she, she does steal but that's a whole <laughs> <story>. <laughs> she's not an avenger style hero no, she's not an adventure style hero. That's right. Um, and so it was It was interesting to me, I thought, um, to show that in this format, in the, in the format of a film, and, and to really go on this gut-wrenching adventure with this, with this woman and see how she comes out in the end. Well, it's interesting that you use terms like gut-wrenching. Uh, the movie is heartbreaking by times, but I never felt that the optimism of the characters disappeared completely. I always felt that there was a hope, at least no matter how tenuous it was, a hope for redemption for all the characters. And I think that that is a testament to the writing. It's a testament to the direction of the film. But for me, uh, that's one of the things that really set this apart. We could wallow in Deborah's unfortunate situation, but for some reason, I always in my heart knew that probably things were going to get better for her. That's amazing because that's really where I came from as a writer and as a director. And that's where I come from as an artist as well. I, I really believe in redemption. I really believe in hope. And I really think it's important to put those kinds of stories out there, you know, um, and especially now when people are like what's going on blah 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 and it's so easy to turn to despair or like turn to like oh my god the world is falling apart and there's no hope but i i actually really believe the darkest hours before the dawn i just thought it was so important for this these two characters that they they had resilience that they always kept going that they never gave up that there was always a a bright future ahead that they they really truly believed in and and i'm very much of the point of view that if you believe in that that's what happens and so that was the story that I w needed to write, the story that I needed to direct. And it, I think it came through in the casting as well. So You're listening to my interview with Gloria Kim, director of Queen of the Morning Calm. We'll talk about the casting in a second. I wanted to ask, though, if your background in journalism informed the writing of this story at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think definitely the I what I so appreciated about my background in journalism is that and you're you're a writer as well so i think you get this you you just don't have any room for self-doubt when it comes to, to writing <laughs> when you're in journalism you just have to just go <laughs> and uh a lot of the writing i mean it was in fits and starts because you know you've got to make a living and you know all of these things and have a family and have a life but it was always every time I sat down to write it was just go. I think there was a lot around 
my being able to um, do the research and ask questions and dig deep and and you know figure out you know what what is a sex worker's life like and how are they in their workplace and how do they regard their work and and really they do regard it as work you know it's a it's a it's a job <laughs> and that was really 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 useful i mean i feel like there's so many um stories where you've got the pardon the phrase but the hooker with a heart of gold yeah. and you you just end up writing to that kind of it's a little bit corny a little bit romantic stereotype. notion yeah. yeah that stereotype and and it's like you know and it's her first time you know that kind of thing <laughs> Or she'll so meet a rich guy my... who'll save her from all of this. Yes, yeah. it really helped me to not go down that path. I mean, as a writer, I think you you try all the different paths, but like it was really, it was really, I, I just remember thinking when I was writing the scenes in the strip club, you know, in the first few times I'd, I'd come into it with my own perceptions of what that would be like, which would be, you know, shocking or, you know, degrading and, you know, that kind of thing. And then going back and then doing the research and asking, you know, I was asking several sex workers to read, you know, that part of the script and give me their feedback. And, and they'd be really honest, really blunt. And they'd be like, no, no, you can't have that. You know, oh, you know, it's such a stereotype to have the, the bad strip club owner guy. And I'm like, okay, you're right. You're <laughs> and then I was also really lucky because I um, became acquainted with um, Howard Adams, who owned uh, Fillmore's um, Which we've back seen when it the was film. running. Yeah, yeah, and and he was so great. He was so like, like I I called and they were like, well, you'll have to email him. And I thought, no, you know, I'm just gonna go in and I'm gonna like sit outside his office and wait until he talks to me. <laughs> I could hear him on the on the phone because it was a it's like a, there's an inner office and they let me sit in the inner office and then he, he has an even inner office <laughs> and at first he was on the phone with what sounded like his bookie <laughs> he was like making bets on a game and then he was on the phone with his mother <laughs> and he was very tender with his mother you know and it was like oh, this guy's a real softy, like, inside, you know? Because he, he's very, like, you know, he's quite smooth and he's, you know, very suave and quite handsome and appears super tough, but, like, he was so sweet. <laughs> so that was a really cool experience. And I definitely that had, like, my journalistic, like, it was just me going, no, I'm going to, like, hunt down the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you can feel the, uh, the texture in the film. I think in those scenes at Fillmore's for people that aren't listening, it's a very famous strip club in Toronto. It's been there for decades, decades. Uh, but also uh, later, and this doesn't give anything away when Deborah and Mona are on the street uh, temporarily, you get a real sense of, of what that would be like. There is a, a, a panic and a vulnerability, but she's trying to keep Mona calm. There is so much happening in that, in that scene, in that moment. And it's not overplayed. You it would have been very easy, I think, to go over the top with a scene like that. And it doesn't happen in this movie. And I think Thank that's you. where it feels real. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, that means so much to me. <laughs> We're midway through my interview with Gloria Kim, director of Queen of the Morning Calm. In the next segment, we talk about finding the exact right actors to bring her story to life. Stay with us.
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. David Cronenberg once said that 90% of a director's job is in the casting, finding the right actors for the right roles. In this segment with Gloria Kim, director of Queen of the Morning Calm, playing in theaters from September 25th, I wanted to find out how she found the perfect people to populate her movie. You originally envisioned Deborah to be an older character in her late 30s. You decided to open up the role to a younger age bracket. Why, why is that? I had initially started her a little older because I was thinking of my own mother. And then I remember having a conversation with a producer, a uh, Chinese-Canadian produ producer, Sydney Chu, who's super lovely, who gave me the best notes ever. Um, he, because he's, you know, he's Asian, and he gets it, and he said to me, well, you know, like, a woman in her 30s who's still doing it, the audience is going to judge her a lot harder. And also that you'll really close the gap in terms of, casting it'll be harder to cast for her and I thought okay you know I should maybe just open this up a little bit and just see where that takes me and I had also kind of envisioned her more as an like an, a recent immigrant but when I started the casting and I was working with Marissa Richmond who's a wonderful casting director I saw a lot of women who were not recent immigrants and they were they were a lot of, a lot of them were putting on an accent and I thought oh this isn't this doesn't feel right, it doesn't, and you know, I think as a director, as a filmmaker, you have to sort of listen to your gut and you have to listen to your feel and you have to be willing to pivot and not get really like stuck or married to an idea because, oh, well, this was kind of what I thought in my head, right? Like it just, it isn't, that isn't the way to work as a filmmaker. And Tina Jung came in and she had such a special quality about her. I call her like a uh, like a baby tigress or a baby goddess, you know? And I mean that in like the most generous, loving, kind of in awe sort of way at her gifts, right? Because she has this combination of vulnerability and femininity mixed with this like core of hard steel strength. I believed her when she was angry. I believed her when she was fierce. Um, she wasn't pretending. And she was, of all the actresses who came in, and there were many talented actresses who came in, many beautiful actresses, um, she was the one I believed would just in like the depths of despair and the worst situation, be able to just pick herself and her child up and keep going. David Cronenberg told me one time that casting is 90% of the director's job. And with this, you've got Tina John, tremendous as Deborah, but then there's Eponine Lee who plays Mona, yes. the, the oh nine God. or 10 year old girl. Tell me about finding her because again, this is a character who's not, like a lot of kids that we see in movies, she's not precocious. She's angry by time. She does some kind of bad things. Uh, but she also, in many ways, uh, is the, the catalyst that keeps Deborah moving forward. Uh, so if you don't believe her, you don't buy into the movie, I don't think. I 100%. Like, it's so key that she had to be real. When's dad coming home? He's working. He's coming for my birthday, right? Mm-hmm. Can you text him? Later. No, now. I don't know if he'll answer. Please, Mom, please text him. I saw so many really adorable actors who came in and they were just, you know, 
there's a kind of training that they go through because the kind of work that child actors get by and large it's a very you want to call it almost disney right that sort of kid that's like the child actor who they do a lot of little things a lot of tricks a lot of dancing around and you know, <laughs> look at the camera and, and smile yes yeah and and they're so cute and and that's the way they've been trained and that's how they book work you know and i saw some interesting kids too and i would try to get them to stay still because a lot of what eponine does in this film is just emit an act from her stillness and that was what the character needed i knew that if if she didn't have the gravitas we were never going to believe her and I just, I couldn't find it in the actors. And so I finally turned to my friend Inns Choi, um, who, who has a deep knowledge of, of the theater world and casting in the theater world, because that's where he came up. And he's an actor himself. And I, I said, is there anyone that you know in the theater community, like a hidden gem anywhere? Like, and he said, well, you know, my friend Richard Lee has a daughter who, you know, is an actor and might be interested, but the, the subject matter is so tough that I don't know. And I said, well, you know, can you just at least put me in touch and I'll just send him a full script because I wanted everybody who came in, I gave everybody the full script. I was like, I want you to know what you're getting yourself. You're listening to my interview with Gloria Kim, director of Queen of the Morning Con. Richard emailed me and he said, okay, you know, uh, she'll come in. And it was interesting because Richard told me afterwards that they both read the script and and Richard said to Eponine you know I don't know Epps it's really really tough material and she was like but I want to do it dad I want to do it <laughs> and she just blew me away she was so incredible she had a, a true sense of mischief she was like she had a true um like I hate to use the word innocence but like like a purity about her that was so real. And then when she was angry, she was really angry. And when she was sad, she was really sad. I, I didn't feel like I had to use any tricks with her. And in fact, when I worked with her on set, she would come with this whole binder and every scene she had written notes about her character. And she's 10 years and old. We I should let like, people know that, right? Yeah, yeah. Like she was, at the time she was 11 at the time that we were shooting. So we were under the actor rules and she was, she, it was just incredible. But like, I have to credit her parents, her dad, Richard, and her mother, um, her, her mom, um, Nina Lee Aquino is uh, the uh, artistic director at factory so she's she's come up in this incredible pedigree right like i like to call her toronto theater royalty <laughs> <laughs> that was gloria kim speaking about her new movie it's called queen of the morning calm you can find it playing in a theater near you check your local listings starting on september 25th when we come back, we're going to meet Tamara Cherry. Now, Tamara Cherry, you may know the name as a crime reporter. Well, she's stepped into the world of fiction, sort of, kind of. She has a new book out, which is a fictionalized version of some of the stories that she covered about human trafficking years ago. It's a fascinating book. It's called All the Bumpy Pebbles. We'll tell you all about it when we come back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. In this segment, we're going to meet longtime Toronto crime reporter Tamara Cherry. 
Now, she was most recently the crime specialist for CTV News Toronto. She received several awards for her reporting on human trafficking, many of them garnered from her years working at the Toronto Sun. Now, she's written a book called All the Bumpy Pebbles. It is a raw, page-turner of a book, and it's kind of a crash course on the domestic sex trafficking of Canadian women and girls. The novelist follows a protagonist named Roxanne, a teenager from the suburbs of Toronto, as she embarks on a relationship with a young man who, as it turns out, is not all that he seems. To set the stage, so to speak, I had Tamara begin by just telling us a little bit about her background and how she became involved in these stories. Long before I started at CTV Toronto, um, I started out working for newspapers. I worked at the Regina Leader Post, the Calgary Herald, the Toronto Star, and then I finally landed my first permanent full-time gig at the Toronto Sun. And um, I, I was a general assignment reporter there for a very short period of time before moving on to the crime beat full-time. And once I was on the crime beat, I was working a weekend shift in January 2008 when a news release came over uh, through the fax machine. And it was about a human, tra- a human trafficking arrest in downtown Toronto. And the allegations were like straight out of a movie. In fact, I just watched a movie about human trafficking a few months before. And basically the allegations were that um, a group of women had come over from an Eastern European country thinking that they would be working as models in Toronto and instead they were enslaved in the sex trade. So I was saying, oh my God, human trafficking is happening in Canada. This is crazy. I went and, you know, I interviewed the wife of one of the alleged traffickers um, and I just did story after story after story of these international human trafficking cases in Canada. What does trafficking look like? And then in a couple weeks after that, so probably about the third week of January 2008, an email landed in my inbox. I was sitting in the Toronto Sun newsroom. I remember it was like it was yesterday. Uh, this guy named Detective Randall Cowan, who was then the head of the Peel Regional Police Vice Squad, sent me an email and he said, basically, you know, I think it's great that you are doing these stories about human trafficking, uh, but just so you know, Toronto wasn't the first police force to lay the charge in Canada. And in fact, we have a whole bunch of human trafficking cases before the courts out here in Peel. Why don't you come over and we'll sit down and talk to you about it a little bit. And as part of that email, he sent me basically a synopsis of these seven or eight cases they had before the courts. And not one of them had international ties. They all had to do with uh, allegations of domestic sex trafficking. What I would have thought of as, uh, you know, historically as a pimping case, basically where a young woman or a girl often uh, falls in love with her boyfriend and she thinks everything is hunky-dory and then suddenly he has forced her into working in a strip club or in a motel room or in a massage parlor. And I mean, that one email basically, it changed a huge course of my career. I, for the, the, the following years, I had a major focus on the domestic sex trafficking of Canadian women and girls. Um, I've lectured very widely on the topic to police officers, lawyers, frontline service providers, and it's something I'm very passionate about. Well, you weren't alone in your surprise at learning the details here, because I think a lot of us think of these kinds of stories when we hear them, uh, like something out of a movie, like it doesn't happen here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is shocking to know how widespread it is here. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the problem with the whole movie scenario is, 
first of all, that stuff does happen in Canada. And I, I did do some stories about that. There are cases of, you know, a woman brought over from India to live with an uncle here and she's locked in the basement and, and kept as the, the neighborhood sex slave. I've heard those stories. But most of our human trafficking cases, they involve such a level of manipulation, coercion, um, control, like psychological games that are played with the victims that I think it's very hard for members of the public to wrap their heads around the fact that this, there's actually victimization happening here. One of the biggest hurdles I had as a reporter was explaining to people who would say to me, well, why didn't she just leave? Why didn't she just run out the door? She wasn't chained to the bed. And explaining to them the psychological um, manipulation that happens that basically is chaining these girls and women for the most part, you know, there are boys, transgender, it's all different populations that are affected, but majority of my work is about girls and women. Um, that basically like these psychological games and sometimes threats and actual use of violence that is chaining them to these beds. And, and they are forced to just endure horrific conditions. I, I remember reporting on one case when I was at the Toronto Sun about a young woman that was essentially kidnapped and uh, gang raped and tied up in a closet for days, burned with cigarette butts. Um, basically beaten down to a point that when she came out of that closet, she was told, you belong to us, you're going to do whatever we want. There's so many stories like that, like it, they would blow your mind, Richard. And that is sort of what this book is about. It's trying to illustrate, it attempts to illustrate, you know, how these, these girls and women uh, get brought into this world and why it's so difficult for them to leave. And then uh, by the time they do leave, you know, um, I wanted to show the public all of the layers of trauma that they've experienced and how important it is for us to support them for often, you know, several years after the fact. You're listening to my interview with Tamara Cherry, author of All the Bumpy Pebbles. It's written from the perspective of a 15-year-old named Roxanne. Is that character a composite of all the young girls and women that you interviewed, or is she a complete work of fiction? She's a composite. Um, so it's interesting. So I... She's a composite of a whole bunch of different survivors I interviewed over the years, as are different characters in the book that she comes in contact with. Um, basically, when you're reading the book and you think, oh my God, that would never actually happen. No, that actually happened to somebody that I interviewed. That was a story that was told to me firsthand by a survivor. I brought in some of my own memories from my own childhood because there were so many uh, times when I was reporting on this that I thought, oh my God, that could have happened to me. Or, oh my God, what would have happened if a young, good-looking guy would have come to me while I was sitting outside of a Burger King, like during my lunch break from school when I was shy and when I wanted nothing more for a boy to pay attention to me? What would have happened if a charismatic pimp would have rolled up next to me there? Would I have been exploited in that way. So I've, I've brought in some of myself in there, but all of the bad stuff that happens, that actually happened. Um, There's so many young women that inspired this book. Um, and I owe them a debt of gratitude. I, obviously, they can't be named, but um, so many young women who shared their stories with me and in doing so relived their trauma, all with hopes of preventing somebody else from being victimized. You know, Richard, I've I've interviewed so many survivors of sex trafficking over the years and never once has one of them asked me for anything in return, not even so much as a copy of the newspaper story that I was writing about them. But every single time at the end of the interview, when I asked them, you know, is there anything else you'd like to add? They wanted to run through the red flags, you know, like if your boyfriend does this, 
you know, it's not okay. If he does this, it's not okay. Here are the red flags. They just wanted to make sure that what happened to them didn't happen again. So that is my goal in writing this book. Well, you say that if you're looking for a comfortable book to read, this isn't it. Yeah. So it's a hybrid of your experience as a crime reporter and your work as a novelist, uh, but it doesn't sound like you've blunted down the edges at all of this story. Not at all. It's, it's some parts I will be very frank are very uncomfortable to read. I have a disclaimer at the beginning that um, sort of a trigger warning that um, the book contains some very graphic scenes and depictions of sexual violence, of uh, verbal and physical abuse, of anti-Black racism. There are a lot of real issues that are involved in this. And for me, it was very important, and it always is when I'm talking about this, um, to not dull things down. I remember when I was reporting on this at the Toronto Sun all those years ago, I would often go to my editors and say, look, this is what happened to her. Like, can I say this? Or, and I, I was just putting warnings at the top of like most of my stories, you know, um, because it's, it, this book, it's, it's raw because it's real. I want people to know what's happening so that they can't, they can't think, oh, well, that would never happen or that wasn't so bad or she could have left that situation. And actually throughout the book, I include these uh, paper clipped portions. So it's, it's a book, the book is a work of fiction, but throughout there's these paper clip portions of, of real events. So sometimes it is uh, court documents from actual cases. Sometimes it's quotes from actual interviews with survivors or police officers. Um, and those are sort of meant to bring the reader back to remind them that, look, this stuff actually happened. It's happened. It happened 10 years ago. It's happening today. It deserves our attention. This is a work of fiction, but it's based on fact and we can't turn a blind eye to it. So it's, it's raw, it's real, but it's for a reason. Stay with us when we come back. There's more with Tamara Cherry on her book, All the Bumpy Pebbles. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I'm midway through my conversation with Tamara Cherry. She's a former crime reporter who has just released what she calls a crash course in human trafficking. It's a novel called All the Bumpy Pebbles. And she says the most difficult part of reporting on this unconscionable crime was making the average person understand how victims get drawn into this world. We begin this part of the interview with me asking Tamara, why write a fictional story about human trafficking rather than a true crime novel? This is what she had to say. So that's an excellent question. Um, around the time that I started writing this book, and we're talking about a decade ago, really, that I started working on this. Um, I was actually working with one of the survivors from one of the first human trafficking convictions in Canada. And I had done a lot of stories about her case um, anonymously, like she was never identified. And she had expressed an interest in doing more. So I said, well, why don't we start a book? And I was flying out to another province. Um, a few, I flew out a few times to, to interview her and we were really getting into her childhood and everything. And it ended up being uh, a traumatizing experience for her where it got to the point that I was like, you know what, let's step back from this. If years down the road, you want to do something, I'm happy to have that conversation. But this is not a healthy thing that's happening. Like I said, like these survivors, a lot of them have layers upon layers upon layers of trauma that they suffer. So for me, this was a way that I could bring in a whole bunch of different stories and write it in a way that it is relatable to the common person. Because one thing about human trafficking, and I point this out too in my book, you know, um, 
And I'm talking about Roxanne in this book and the various characters that she meets, but there's so much stuff that I can't talk about. I think when you hear survivors speak, all of their stories are so valuable, but they're their stories. They're so unique and they don't represent everybody. This, is, this was my attempt to sort of give um, as broad strokes as possible while giving you insight into one, one girl's experience. Um, but it was, for me, this was just the best way to tell the stories that I was told without going too deep with any one of the girls or women that I spoke with. As a crime reporter, is it hard at the end of the day just to let it go? You must see some horrific things and or hear some horrific things. How do you shut it off? Um, well, I can tell you, you know, the first time I interviewed a survivor of human trafficking, I called my sister on my drive back from Peel Regional Police Investigative Services Building to Toronto Sun headquarters downtown, and I cried. Um, and I did that a lot as a crime reporter. At the end of my day on the particularly hard days, I would basically call up my sister, my mom, um, my husband, and just like cry. And sometimes I would talk about what I saw or heard. I was told and sometimes I would just cry and I would let it out and that's it. I, I know other reporters who have told me like quite frankly that they turn to the bottle or they just bury it away. But I've always been somebody that talks about this stuff and I think it's the most healthy way to deal with it and try to turn it into something positive. You know, try to, as my job as a crime reporter, I'm not, not a crime reporter anymore, but my job as a crime reporter, I thought was always to create that empathy in the community and make people care about a situation that they might think is not their problem or would never happen to them or their loved one so that, you know, hopefully we can affect change and prevent further victimization or better support the victim. So I saw real value in the job that I was doing and that helped. But also, you know, that said, I definitely carry stuff with me. I carry it. And the hope is, as, as one trauma expert, I listen to her podcast says like, the hope is that you carry it lightly. So, you know, there's not a night that goes by that I don't say goodnight to my kids and, and picture some horrible things that have happened to other kids in the world um, that I've reported on. But that's sort of my role. And I, I was proud of the job that I did. And I have no regrets about some of the experiences that I carry with me to this day. You're listening to my interview with former crime reporter turned novelist Tamara Cherry about her book, All the Bumpy Pebbles. You talk about bringing something positive to these horrible stories and the terrible crimes that you covered. Uh, the book is doing that by uh, donating a portion of the proceeds uh, to Covenant House in Toronto. For people that are listening across the country, what is Covenant House and why did you choose to support that particular uh, um, company? So Covenant House uh, has been around for decades. And I think people in Toronto, when they think of Covenant House, they think of an agency that works with homeless youth. And by and large, that is what they do. But in recent years, I mean, actually, I shouldn't even say in recent years, for decades, they've not only been dealing with homeless youth and helping them, uh, but they've been working with sex workers and helping them. Like before human trafficking was a charge in the criminal code, they recognized the victimization that a lot of these women endure. Um, and then after human trafficking became a charge in the criminal code in 2005, um, in more recent years, Covenant House has really made it a part of their brand to, to educate the public around what human trafficking looks like and to, to proactively support uh, victims and survivors of this horrific crime. Um, I've recognized the awesome work that they're doing. Like they go into schools and talk to people. They, they do public awareness campaigns. They've just been doing awesome work. And I, when I was thinking about, you know, how can I 
go further and, and help people with this book. They're the first organization that came to mind. So they were actually very much a part of the process. I was ready to publish this book back in May. And then I approached them. They were interested. They read the manuscript. They really liked it, but they gave me some really valuable trauma-informed feedback. As it turned out, a couple of the survivors um, whose cases are whose case was referenced in one of the paperclip portions of my book uh, actually work with Covenant House. Like they support those survivors. And it was really interesting because I had initially named uh, the traffickers in the, in the paperclip portions and Covenant House came back to me and said, you can't do that. Like they're very upset with this. That is very triggering for them. And so it's something I had never considered before. So as a result, I took out the names of the traffickers in the paper-clipped portions. Um, and they were, they were very grateful for that. Um, but I'm so happy that I went to them because they, they made me realize a, a perspective I had never considered before. And yeah, so it I just made me feel better about pushing it out into the world. That was Tamara Cherry talking about her new book. It's called All the Bumpy Pebbles. And you can find that book on Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, Barnes & Nobles, anywhere that you legally buy books, you'll be able to find All the Bumpy Pebbles. Now I'm just going to leave you with a little taste of an interview that I'll play the whole thing for you next week. But I wanted to share this with you because it's pretty fun. In 1980, Rough Trade released their second album. It was called Avoid Freud. The second single from that album was called High School Confidential. You know it. It sounds like this. It was a giant hit that made you think and made you dance, and it helped usher in an upheaval in art, fashion, and lifestyle, and moved Rough Trade from underground cult legends to national acclaim. Recently, High School Confidential was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Kevin Staples, co-writer and keyboardist for Rough Trade, joined me to talk about it. Here's a bit of the interview. We'll play you the whole thing another time. Is it true? Okay, these are some rumors that I've heard about this. Is it true that High School Confidential was originally written for Mink DeVille to perform? That is true. <laughs> Next question. No, um, it was, uh, we were asked by, um, <clears throat> William Friedman was making this movie Cruising with Al Pacino mm -hmm. and uh, Jack Nietzsche, who was the uh, music, like the, the uh, well, I guess the producer for the music, um, music supervisor asked us to, um, through a mutual friend, asked us to write a bunch of songs to see, you know, if they would play in the movie. So we did. We wrote a, a bunch of songs and some of them made it and some of them didn't. And high school was one of the rejects. And, uh, and it was originally written because we wrote all the songs with the idea that, um, you know, Mink was going to be singing them because yeah. he did the bulk of the music. Yeah, so that's the story on that. And essentially, uh, <clears throat> the inspiration was, you know, a little bit of the 1958 movie and a little bit of just what, you know, what Carol had grown up with in, you know, in her day in high school and, yeah. you know, the cool kids and the not so cool kids, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, but having that song being sung by a woman, of course, is what gave the song its you know, really gave it a lot of character. And did it feel like High School Confidential was ahead of its time? Once you recorded it, originally written for a man to sing, now Carol Pope is singing it. 
which lends a different feel to the song. Um, did it feel ahead of its time? Did it feel like it was blazing some new ground? Um, not, I mean, you know, I think if you're, if you're cre creative at all, you're never really thinking about blazing new ground. Like it's not what your sort of what your focus is. It's only in hindsight that you look back and say, oh, that was kind of different, you know, at the time. But no, I don't think so. I think when we wrote it, it was just, it was just a lighthearted, silly song, in a sense. We were kind of surprised at how much traction it had. And I think it's partly because, of, you know, getting uh, censored on the radio didn't hurt. And uh, again, you know, that was Carol singing it. It's a light, it's a light song. It's a very light song. It's a fun song, you know, and, and it's silly and people get that. And, I, and so the legacy is that they see the humor of it and the satire and the sort of uh, raciness of it, you know, whichever, whatever that is, because we never thought of it that way. We just thought it was, you know, it was kind of satirical for us. Like making, you know, light of the 1958, like, I don't know if you ever saw the 1958 movie. Jerry Lee Lewis, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it was just that genre. So it is kind of a satirical look at that genre. That was High School Confidential co-writer Kevin Staples talking about the origins of the song on the occasion of having that song entered into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. I did quite a long interview with him where we really get into the writing of the song and what the song meant to people. We'll play that for you another time. Right now, I'd like to thank all my guests, Gloria Kim, see her movie, Queen of the Morning Calm, in theater starting September 25th, and pick up Tamara Cherry's book, All the Bumpy Pebbles. It's available through Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, Barnes & Nobles, wherever you legally download and buy books. Until next time, I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.